beautiful song to remind us of the worth of the King that we serve. If you have your Bibles this morning, open them up with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 11. We, we continue our, 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 uh, our look through the Lord's Prayer given in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 11, the first four verses. I want to read it to you again, the prayer in a, in a bit of a truncated version from the one we are more familiar with in Matthew's Gospel. We addressed that last week. We don't have to go over that again. But there may be some phraseology somewhat different between this and what you're used to hearing in Matthew's Gospel. As we, as we read through these verses, I want you to notice with me the, the priority of the prayer and the pattern of the prayer as we work through it together this morning. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. There's a priority of the prayer that Jesus gives and I want to share this with you by way of introduction and an order that Jesus gives within this passage that relates to the priority of prayer and you notice that in how the prayer is given to us. Jesus tells us to pray first of all that God would be glorified, that God's glory would be seen. Father, hallowed be your name. In other words, there is first of all the recognition that God is holy and that God would be seen in his holiness within our lives and those around us and it is then only after then that we are then able to step into the prayer of of petitions that where we pray for us and our needs now that's important that's important I think for us to notice because oftentimes and think within your own lives about this for just a moment oftentimes the very thing that motivates us in our praying is is a sense of dire circumstances of some sort. There is a certain need that we have, isn't there? And so this, this motivates us to pray. I'm in this situation, and so let me pray. God, take care of this situation. I'm in this situation, and so I pray, God, take care of this situation. And it is oftentimes the situations in which we find ourselves that become the motivators for us within our prayer. And more often than not, it's usually along these lines, God get me out of this, isn't it? God deliver me. God take me away from this. God remove me from this or remove this from me. We are fervent in our prayer when we feel most troubled and most vulnerable. And it's in those times that we pray, God take care of this situation, whatever it is. Now there's not a problem with doing that. I don't want you to leave from here thinking that, well, the pastor said that we shouldn't pray that God would help us out in situations or things of that nature. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying to you is oftentimes, and I believe Jesus confirms this, what happens is we are upside down within this. 
because we come praying that God would take care of us without first realizing who God is and praying that God would be glorified in the midst of that trouble, in the midst of that something, in the midst of that situation, that God would be seen as great in the midst of our trouble. In other words, we should begin praying that God's greatness and God's glory would be seen in our lives regardless of what happens with the situation and the circumstance. It's appropriate to pray for deliverance, but our ultimate concern should be that even through that trouble, that God's kingdom, that God's glory would be seen. So that if God comes along and He says, I'm not going to deliver you from this trouble because I want my glory to be seen in the midst of it, we are okay with that, resting in the goodness and the greatness of God. And so Jesus teaches us that we begin by praying that God's name would be glorified, that God's name would be made much of, that His name would be hallowed. Because what happens is we so often see God as a means to an end. God is much like a genie. God is much like Santa Claus. Here's what I want, give me what I want, and then I'll come back to you when I need something else. And Jesus turns this completely upside down. He says, no, you begin by acknowledging and praying that God's glory would be seen regardless of our circumstances. Father, hallowed be your name. It's as though Jesus is saying, when troubles come, our prayer needs to be, Father, I really do ask that you would bring me relief from this situation and from these troubles. But it's more important that I see your glory in this than that I be delivered from this and along with that that others see your glory in in me and in my life and my response to this regardless of whether you deliver me or not see Jesus is our great example in this in this priority of prayer when he's praying in the garden before he is arrested and before his crucifixion, he is praying there when the, the weight of the sin of the world is being pressed upon him and the agony of what is about to take place, the crucifixion, and he prays. What does he pray? Father, let this cup be delivered from me. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He continues to say, however, not my will but your will be done within this. Of course, none of us would want to face the horror and agony of crucifixion. Of course we would pray for God's deliverance. But Jesus comes along and he says, but more importantly, let your glory be seen in the midst of this. This is the priority of the prayer that is given. Father, hallowed be your name. And then there's a pattern of the prayer as well. 
Jesus doesn't just give this as mere words to be repeated. It's, it's not just something that we go through with rote memorization, although oftentimes we do that, and sometimes, uh, maybe, maybe individually, maybe as in a group setting, we might pray the Lord's Prayer together as a group, but Jesus wasn't just giving us a mantra of some sort to pray. He was giving us, if you will, kind of an outline of things that should fill our prayers. Father, hallowed be your name. Therein we worship the Father. We pray for the kingdom of the Father, which we're going to unpack in just a few moments together. We pray your kingdom come. We pray for the kingdom of the Father. We pray for provision from the Father. Give us this day, each day, our daily bread. We pray for forgiveness from the Father and forgive us our sins. We pray protection of the Father. Lead us not into temptation. This is the pattern for prayer. These are the things that should consume our prayer lives where we pray in worship to the Father. We pray for the kingdom of the Father. We pray for provision from the Father. We pray for forgiveness from the Father. We pray for protection of the Father as well. Categories in which you can base your prayer life. This is what Jesus is giving to us. Now with that background, let's hone in on one specific prayer it's the second petition given to us in the Lord's Prayer here. The first petition, Father, hallowed be your name. We pray that God's name would be glorified. And then from there we pray, secondly, your kingdom come. Now let's acknowledge something up front when we pray for this. We're praying for something vastly different than the kingdoms of this world can offer. Your kingdom come. The kingdom of God is incredibly different from the kingdoms of this world. Earthly kingdoms, they, 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 they come under the sway of leaders whose power has been limited and eventually they decline. We, we can, if you know history... You've seen it. You've read about it. Think of it just in a cursory glance. Think of the kingdoms of the Old Testament. You, you have Babylon. You have Assyria who are at one point these superpowers having come in and both of these kingdoms having overrun the divided nation of Israel and taken them captive. Where are they now? They're just a footnote in history, aren't they? Think of Rome with all of its influence and now what's left of it. We've just been left with ancient sites and the Latin language, a dead language. You know why medical stuff is so often in Latin? Because the language doesn't change. It's dead. That's what we have left of Rome. Think of the royal families of Russia. They've, they've long since been gone. Hitler's Third Reich, it ended in disgrace. The British Empire no longer rules the waves. Even America, with our supposed status as a superpower, but we stand on the brink of moral collapse as a nation. And yet in distinction to that, Psalm 145, we read of God's kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. All the kingdoms of this world, they rise for a season, they fall for a season, others come to replace them, they go up, they go down, they're overrun here and there, but not God's kingdom. 
God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and it endures throughout all generations into all eternity. And so we pray, Father, your kingdom come. What are we praying for when we pray for God's kingdom to come? We're asking that God's sovereign rule might increasingly be established in the hearts and the lives of those who acknowledge Him as King. But that also it might happen to those who are presently living in rebellion against God, being held captive by the forces of darkness, that they would come into this kingdom as well. As Paul writes to the church at Colossae, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. In a very real sense. We are children of the kingdom, the eternal, established, enduring kingdom. I am, I am just so thankful that in my life, God has allowed me to come to this point where we are praying for His kingdom to come. When We look forward in just a few days to another blasted election in this nation. I've made the mistake in recent weeks of frequently visiting the Twitterverse. I think there's going to have to be an intervention to get me off of it. To read what people write. If the Republicans win, all hope is gone. If the Democrats win, all hope is gone. And it's coming from people who belong to Christ. Friends, I'm telling you, I don't care, and the Word of God doesn't care if it is an elephant or a donkey that runs Congress. Hope is not lost because of the kingdom of God. Father, your kingdom come. Christians in America, we pray more fervently that the Republican kingdom would come or the Democrat kingdom would come and we fail to recognize the great eternal kingdom of God in which we live and the only place in which there is hope. And in this prayer, your kingdom come. It serves as a reminder to us that God rules and God reigns and we look forward with great anticipation to the full consummation of His ruling and reigning in His kingdom. As we read just a few moments ago after the temptation of Jesus, that Jesus goes out and He preaches the kingdom. Jesus preaches the kingdom, kingdom saying to the people, there is a kingdom and I am the king. You're not in the kingdom, but if you will follow me, I will make you a citizen of this kingdom. The emphasis of Jesus, it's a striking emphasis within the whole Bible, is upon the spiritual and the inward character of the kingdom of God. 
When Jesus stands before Pilate after he is arrested, before his crucifixion, Jesus says to Pilate in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom were of this world. My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Friends, do you see the problem that happens to us when we establish our kingdoms in this world? Some of us do it politically. Some of us do it familially. Within our own families, this is my kingdom, this is my domain, and I will be the ruler of it. Jesus says, no, it's not going to happen. When we look at this prayer, your kingdom come, there are four things about this prayer. There is a prayer of destruction, a prayer of construction, a prayer of conversion, and a prayer of completion. First of all, prayer of destruction. When we pray this prayer, Father, your kingdom come, we are praying against Satan's kingdom that it would be destroyed. Any concern that we might have that God's kingdom be built up, to see the church built up, necessarily brings opposition to and from Satan and his kingdom. We live today as Christians. The threat that we face in the advancement of the kingdom is the threat of the world and the flesh and the devil. Do you remember Jesus when he is with his disciples and they're there in Caesarea Philippi and he asks them, who do men say that I am? Then he comes along and he says, now who do you say that I am? And in Matthew chapter 16, Peter gives this grand confession of who Jesus is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, yes, that's right. You're absolutely right, Peter. You didn't figure it out on your own. God's revealed this to you, but you're absolutely right. And Jesus says from that, Matthew 16, 18, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Friends, understand, when we enter into prayer, especially kingdom prayer of this nature, we are stepping into an act of warfare. In this prayer, we are asking God to fully destroy Satan's kingdom and his rule in our lives, in our families, in our world. That's an act of war. We're praying, Lord, win against the gates of hell. Break them down in my life. Break them down in the lives of my family. We can't pray this and not begin with us. Are there desires that we have that are ungodly? Is there behavior in which we participate that does not bring God glory? Must we not pray that God would break down those very things in our lives, those areas of rebellion and disobedience against Him and His kingdom be established in their stead? It's a prayer of destruction. It's a prayer of construction as well. Father, Your kingdom come. Now, we don't build the kingdom. 
It's always God who builds his kingdom. We don't build the kingdom. God builds his kingdom. God extends his kingdom. But even though God builds his kingdom, God's people care that God's kingdom be built. And our prayer should reflect a true heart desire that God's rule would be advanced in our lives and those around us. It's the notion of submission to God's plan for our lives. That our lives would give evidence of what Paul refers to as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. See, what happens is we all want to change the world out there. We can't be involved in changing the world out there until the world in here is changed. Our being, our emotions, our intellect, our wills, that the king would come in control of our lives. That that here our commitments would be real to the kingdom of God. You see, in in our lives, for every single one of us, there's a throne. There's a throne in your heart. There's a throne in my heart. And either you're going to sit on that throne or Christ is going to sit on that throne. Which is it? When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying that it would come within our lives as well, that Christ would be seated on the throne and that we would live in submission to Him. Pray for God's kingdom to come has a direct impact on you, Christian, and on me. If Jesus really is my King, Am am I obviously a loyal subject to him? Here we pray, Father, your kingdom come, praying for God's kingdom to be constructed, not only in our community, but in our hearts and lives as well. There's a prayer of destruction, a prayer of construction. Thirdly, there's a prayer for conversion. Father, your kingdom come. We cannot pray for the advancing of God's rule without desiring to see it more achieved in our own lives and to see others brought into the righteous rule of the kingdom of God. See, as as Christians, as followers of Christ, we can never be indifferent about others' entrance into the kingdom. It's the height of selfishness for us to do that. To think I'm a child of the kingdom, I don't care what happens to you. See, in John chapter 3, Jesus has an encounter with Nicodemus. Jesus answered him, John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See what he says in verse 3? Unless he's born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, unless he's born again, he can't enter the kingdom of God. To see it and to enter it. And it may be that, maybe that you're here in this boat this morning. Maybe even that you're involved in religious things like Nicodemus was. That there's a great hunger in your heart to know God in a personal way. Jesus uses the radically transforming words of being born again. Remember Zacchaeus climbed up in the tree to, to see Jesus. And, G and Zacchaeus saw what he had never seen before in the grace and mercy of Jesus. And he entered into the kingdom. Saul on the road to Damascus, he sees what he had never seen before and he enter, enters into the kingdom. Lydia, in Acts chapter 16, she is interested in God and suddenly through the teaching of the Bible, we read that her eyes are open. She sees and she enters into the kingdom of heaven. It's the change that God brings about in a person's life. Unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. There is a plea when we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, that people would come to know Christ. It's amazing, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are together, Jesus has ascended to heaven. In verse 13 we read, and when they had entered... They went up to the upper room where they were staying. Look, look at the gathering, at the list of people. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. And these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, praying with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Look at them gathered here together after Jesus has ascended to heaven. And what are they doing? They are devoting themselves to prayer, gathering there and praying. And what happens out of their prayer meeting? Peter preaches the gospel. Some 3,000 people were added to the church. Church, when is the last time that we've seriously prayed for people to get saved? Direct correlation between the people in prayer in verse 13 and the dramatic discovery of thousands of people being ushered into the kingdom. Do we pray for people to come to know Christ? Do we pray for conversions? Do we even care about that? Is it part of our prayer? I mean no disrespect, but we know how most prayer services go, don't we? 
You want to kill a church service, just tell everybody we're having a prayer service. You spend more time praying for Aunt Sally to not go to heaven than we do for Uncle John to get saved so he can go to heaven. We fail to pray for people to come to know Jesus. We cannot pray, God, your kingdom come, without praying for lost souls to be converted and brought into the family of Christ. I have a list of people that I pray for consistently that they might come to know Jesus. Some of them are my own family members. Some of them are friends or acquaintances that I've met through life. Some of you I'm praying that you would come to know Jesus, that you would become saved. Church, how is it that we can become so concerned with the things of this life which last 70, 80, maybe 90 years and not be more concerned with the things that will last for the rest of eternity. There's a prayer for destruction, a prayer for construction, a prayer for conversion, and finally, there's a prayer for the completion of God's kingdom. When we pray, Father, your kingdom come, we're praying for the consummation of it all. We're looking forward to that day when we are with him in his kingdom fully. All, all we can see right now is just the scaffolding of it, if you will. The Bible tells us that he is building an unshakable kingdom. Anything in your life shaken? all shaken, isn't it? We, we live in a world that is shaken physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually, mentally. We live in a world that is shaken. And in that, what are we to do? We're to pray, your kingdom come. I don't, I don't need to fear. Christians, we don't need to fear the demise of our influence in the culture because God is building an unshakable kingdom. We don't have to fear that we might become insignificant to this world, that we might be totally politically irrelevant because God is building an unshakable kingdom. We know we now live under the kingdom of grace. We've been forgiven. But God's kingdom has not yet come in all of its fullness. Not yet. We pray this prayer like we do, Father, your kingdom come. We're praying that God's kingdom would come in full completion. All the way over in the book of Revelation, the Bible ends with the prayer, Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray that the king would come. Because when the king comes, Guess what comes with him? 
the kingdom in all its finality, in all of its fullness, in all of its completion. We this day as followers of Christ are headed for the ultimate king and kingdom. The establishment of his kingdom. We await his coming. For all that I don't understand about the coming kingdom, for all that I don't understand about what's going to be involved in that, I understand this. The coming of Jesus Christ will be personal, will be physical, will be visible, will be sudden, will be glorious. And in this, He will usher His people into His everlasting kingdom. Do we live with that kind of expectation? That we by virtue of Jesus Christ's work, that we've been prepared to live in such an expression of His eternal kingdom. Do we really live within that? When we, when we pray, Your kingdom come, then, then we'll not only be able to take all of this other stuff in stride, but we'll be able to react in a different way to the ravages of sin around us and at times against us. When I was just beginning my seminary career, July 25th, 1993, little church, St. James Anglican Church, Kenilworth, Cape Town, South Africa. There were four members of the Azanian People's Liberation Army that entered in to the church in hooded faces. Eleven members of the congregation were killed. Fifty-eight were wounded in just moments. This was the statement that was released later by a member of that congregation. While as Christians we must live in this fallen world, we do so knowing that at the end there is a new world coming when Jesus will be acknowledged to be king. The members of St. James seek no revenge, and harbor no bitterness. We are content to leave justice in the hands of the Almighty, who has appointed a day of judgment when all will have to give an account of their actions to Him. How can you possibly make that kind of statement if your focus in life is on the now, the me, the us, the why. And understanding that we are looking forward to an unshakable kingdom and Jesus as King and recognizing that we will worship Him fully and completely without the hindrances of sinful behavior and temptation. Maybe the question becomes, will you? 
live in that kind of kingdom? Is that what awaits you? Can you truly pray, Father, your kingdom come, knowing that you are a part of that kingdom? Or if you were to just be brutally honest with yourself today, would you finally be able to admit, I am not a part of that kingdom, and I desperately need to be? You see, Jesus' death and his resurrection made entrance into the kingdom possible. When you come, as Jesus said, in repentance and faith in him, he transforms your life out of this domain and kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. Father, today we thank you We thank you for the hope of your kingdom. We pray for the glorious appearing of your kingdom, Father. We look forward to that day when we are with you. But Father, we would ask even now for your kingdom to come, to undo and destroy the plans of Satan and his kingdom's work against us to develop within us a new heart set upon holiness and righteousness and purity in Jesus. We pray for those we know, those we love, friends, family members, perhaps even church members who have never truly repented and confessed faith in Christ. We pray your kingdom would come and your glory would be displayed. We ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.